does what it's supposed to do, but there is no guarantee. Uh, and then, of course, it requires some kind of external acknowledgement of our existence. Someone can collapse the wave function to let us know that we actually exist. This isn't some kind of. I, I prefer the alternative. To to not to non-existence to. Well, I mean, this is all just a simulation. I, that 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 would be a good alternative. <laughs> well. All right, fine. You want to you want to just start right in on the on the simulation argument? That's okay. We could do that. Okay. Uh, um, all right. So uh, right. So people have confirmed our existence. So so before we get any uh, weirder, uh, I just want to uh, say hi to everybody. Welcome to uh, one of the uh, special guest interviews on Open Space uh, today. We've got uh, Seth Shostak from the SETI Institute. Hey, Seth. Good to see you again. Well, it's good to be back here, Fraser. It's uh... You know, uh, although actually uh, what's disappointing is that I didn't actually have to go anywhere. I could just sit here in my own house as I have been doing for <laughs> seven or eight months now. You know what I'm looking forward to? I'm looking forward to going places and doing things with people. Yeah, 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 I yeah, know. That is definitely uh, my my experience as well. It's just like. Uh, time has no meaning. The days just blur one into the other. Uh, yesterday is tomorrow. It's, it's all the same. So hopefully, yeah, I cannot wait for someone to vaccinate me. Just, just, va just please, just vaccinate me. Put me out of my misery. Let me re, you know, in, you know, go back into society. It'll be great. Um, all right. Well, you know what? We've talked a bunch of times, I think. But for people who don't know, who are you? What do you do? Okay, well, my name is Seth. Uh, you've already heard that, S-E-T-H, and I work for the SETI Institute, that's S-E-T-I, uh, which is close to my name. Yeah. Anyhow, yeah, yeah, coincidence. But the, the SETI Institute is interested in life and space. Uh, in particular, there's the SETI experiment, but that used to be the only kind of research that was done there. That's quite the opposite of the current situation now. Most of the scientists working at the SETI Institute today are doing astrobiology. So they're interested in life in space, but, you know, it might be microbes on Mars or maybe life floating in the uh, acidic clouds of Venus, that kind of thing. You've been playing a long game. And, you know, I, I've mentioned this to you personally in the past. I don't know if I mentioned it here on the show, but, you know, when I first got started in space journalism, uh, I reached out to a bunch of people to, you know, to get advice and just, just sort of connect with the community. And this was literally 20 years ago, 21 years ago now. And you were one of the people and uh, Alan Boyle from Cosmic Log back in the day and a bunch of other people, uh, Phil Plate. And you're all so nice. You're all so welcoming. And, uh, you know, uh, and it was really inspiring. And it has served as the... Uh, template for how I have attempted to uh, welcome every wannabe science communicator into the field as well, which is just like anyone who wants to try to get out there and, and explain and help and communicate the science to anyone who's listening is all right in my book and anything that I can do to to help them out, I, I'm right there for them. So, so thank you just like for everything you've done for me and for the community in general. Well, uh, come on now, Fraser. I mean, to say that I was nice, nobody has ever. Don't make me, me look of... up the email, Seth. I can find this email, and it is it is delightful uh, from twenty years ago. So, well, maybe I was nice then. Well, maybe, maybe, yeah. yeah. It could turn horrible in this very one hour. So, so we'll find out. Um, but, but you back in the day, uh, SETI was a like. It was a, it was a, I guess a non, uh, a non-starter for a lot of the scientific community, and now uh, everybody is a SETI researcher. There's, there's astrobiology is a very serious, well-regarded field at this point. There are telescopes that are going to have uh, astrobiology capabilities built into them. There are spacecraft flying to Mars right now. They're going to help with astrobiology. There are. Um, there's a, it's sort of making its way into almost every field. Uh, how does it feel to have been, you know, so early onto this, uh, quite exciting field? Well, I don't know. I, you know, the bottom line in a way is that despite all the effort, we still haven't found any bio biology beyond Earth. <laughs> well, so sure. in, in a way you can say that's a bit of a bummer despite <laughs> the effort. But on the other hand, 
you know, the good news is that people are taking it seriously. I mean, what you say is certainly true. I, I think in astrobiology, maybe less so than with SETI, because SETI re requires that extra step that it's not just a live, you know, it's a live gym, but <laughs> the fact that, uh, you know, it's also intelligent and can build a radio transmitter. That's another step, which might be a difficult step. So uh, that was regarded very skeptically at the beginning when Frank Drake did mm -hmm. his first experiment back in 1960. Uh, he, he was very careful not to spend very much money, not to spend very much telescope time, you know, just to sort of establish the field because of the the skepticism of much of the science community. But but that's largely gone now. Yeah, it really, it really, you know, I've watched it and reported on it year after year after year. And it's gone from nobody wants to talk about it, but off the record, people are excited about it, to very official uh uh, you know, money being spent even out of NASA for for various versions of this. And so I think the plucky SETI Institute had to gather, you know, find a wealthy benefactor to help build a telescope just to do this this work. And now there's, I think, more telescopes that are sometimes setting aside some time for, for SETI and, and even, you know, more wealthy benefactors, people like Yuri Milner and stuff who are stepping up and being able to provide more funds into this. So I think it's... I wouldn't say it's the golden age yet, but it feels like it's, you know, it's said he's been able to come out of the shadows now. And now I think, you know, start to get some serious work done with a lot of with a lot of powerful resources is my and no longer percent. the lead age. Well, yeah, uh, that, yeah. that's that, that that's certainly true what you say. And, you know, I think people were always interested in the idea of life beyond Earth. I mean, that's that's a very old uh, interest. Certainly goes back to classical Greek and Roman thought. I mean, people were thinking about it. They didn't have the science to actually look. But, you know, we do. So that's exciting. But I think that people were always interested in it. I mean, you know. I agree. <laughs> just you know, think of all the aliens in the movies. Yeah. Right? Or, or, or the interest in UFOs. You know, their interest in the UFOs is probably less in the exact technology of how they light the interiors or there's their spacecraft or anything like that. Yeah. It's the fact that you have somebody from a different world that's come here. That idea is a very appealing one. And in the science community, finding life is very appealing. I mean, you know, I think of which planet, you know, beyond the moon, which planet has been visited the most by our spacecraft? And of course, it's Mars. And it's because scientists are really interested in the lack of plate tectonics on Mars. <laughs> and they no. It's just that Mars might, in fact, yeah. you know, have some indication that it has or once had life. Yeah, it's the it's the it's the best place to to look. But um, and I think at, at what we've seen is in this sort of new flowering of of excitement about SETI, we've seen a lot of ideas come forward, both in terms of searching for exotic form, redefining what what life might look like by finding very exotic life forms here on earth as well as finding liquid water in a lot of places i mean up until 20 years ago the only place we really thought there was liquid water was maybe mars but we didn't know we knew it was at the poles of mars but we didn't know if it was subsurface and now liquid water is everywhere we can even think about and and so suddenly you've gone from this, just this one possible long shot to a really target rich environment. Yeah, it's true. And no, there, there is, I mean, the universe is kind of inundated with water. Yeah. Although I guess that word says it all, but yeah, yeah, yeah. You're, you're quite right. And, and people sometimes will ask, why, why is that? And I don't think it's actually all that surprising when you consider that, what, three quarters of the universe is hydrogen, uh, at least by weight. And the third most popular, most common element is oxygen. So if you have a lot of oxygen and a lot of hydrogen, you get a lot of water. Yeah. Um, now you have, you know, in the past, I know you put a lot of work into the radio side of, of things. Um, are you kind of shifting your approach at all? Do you think that radio is still one of the best ways to, to find a signal? Well, I do. I, I still very much in favor of the radio search. And one thing about radio, is that it can be unambiguous. I just uh, have to say, I wrote a paper that was published about a month or two ago uh, in the International Journal of Astrobiology about looking for artifacts. Uh, that just something that ET is built. Yeah. 
And the advantage of looking for that, of course, is that you don't require that the aliens are sending a signal, be it radio or lasers or whatever, a signal that reaches you just at the time that you're looking, right? It, if they have something gigantic that they built, or maybe they've rearranged their star system or done something, yeah. I mean, you know, if they're a million or a billion years more advanced, and which they could be, by the way, well, maybe they've done something like that. And if they have, maybe you can see that. And maybe they're long gone. Mm -hmm. Maybe they, uh, you know, all died of boredom or who knows what. Yeah. Or self-destructed if you're of that mindset. So I do think that looking for artifacts is a good way to go. The only thing is, it's a little unclear what to look for. But I think you're right that that the advantage of radio is that it is unambiguous, that, that there are certain frequencies that could be coming in the radio spectrum, that there is no other explanation than some artificial signal is generating them. Yeah, that's true. I mean, that's what, what we look for. Not so much the frequencies or some frequencies that you prefer, but that if a signal is at only one spot on the spectrum, right, if it's a narrow band frequency and it's only at, you know, 1683.058 megahertz or whatever, right? Then you can say, well, nature doesn't seem to make signals like that. Yeah. So that must be somebody's transmitter. In that sense, it's unambiguous. Right. And, and I think, you know, we're seeing the downside of, of an ambiguous signal with, with the discovery of phosphine on, on Venus because you've got this, this one chemical that is actually fairly common in, in, in the universe, very common in giant stars like like uh, Saturn and Jupiter. So, uh, but yet, you know, in a um, hydrogen poor environment like Venus, it's quite exciting because we can only think of biology and or none of the abiotic processes that are working on Venus can can help explain it. Um, but it still feels super ambiguous to me. And in fact, you know, the most likely solution is going to turn out to be some form, some abiotic process that we didn't know. And now we will have discovered it. While you could get that message on, you know, Jill Tarter can can pick up the message on on a radio telescope and boom, no question, there's aliens there. Well, I think people will question it. But in general, I absolutely agree, agree with you there. Uh, yeah, the phosphine story is is interesting, but it's true. I mean, even the people who you know, published the paper, talked to at least a couple of them, uh, and they are very careful to say, look, we're not claiming life. Yeah. What we found is the phosphine. And I certainly believe that if you look at the, the data, they have found phosphine. But, you know, okay, but is it phosphine produced by biology or, as you say, some abiotic process? And you can make phosphine, you know, with volcanoes. Those, those do make some phosphine. But if you you know, just sort of do the numbers, the very simple numbers in a way, how many volcanoes you need mm -hmm. in order to produce the observed amount of phosphine. It turns out that, you know, it's <laughs> the entire planet has to be pockmarked <laughs> right. with volcanoes to get enough phosphine. So then, then here's your choice. You know, either it really is floating life or we don't understand enough of the geological processes yeah. that could make phosphine. But either one of those is exciting because to yes. to to discover an abiotic geologic process that can generate large amounts of phosphine, I'm sure we keep the geologists very happy. It would make a few astrobiologists a little disappointed, but still. But to, you know, I mentioned this a couple of times that having a place that we can t make these kinds of observations and then send a balloon and float around in the atmosphere and double check them is incredibly exciting that there's no way if we if we detected phosphine for the first time with the James Webb Space Telescope on a planet orbiting another star that would be pretty much the beginning and the end of the of the story because there would be no way to double check it and so we're so fortunate that we have this world that we can go we make these biosignature discoveries and Mars too and then we can go and double check them and go oh found the abiotic pro okay strike that off the list keep moving down the uh, the list. Yeah, no, you're quite right. I, you know, I, I remember a, a talk by uh, Sarah Seeger. She's one of the people, by mm -hmm. the way, on the phosphine paper. She's at MIT. And she works on what are called biosignatures, which are not the things you'll see on your paycheck. A biosignature is just, you know, some indication in the atmosphere of a planet that there's biology down there. And, you know, she 
sort of characterized the, the problem this way. She said, the, the difficulty is that the very compounds that would indicate biology are pretty much the same compounds that are made by geology. Yes. So, yeah. So you're kind of stuck there. Yeah. But these yeah. people are clever. So. Well, uh, they're clever. And it, <clears throat> you know, like back in the day, it really felt like, oh, all you had to do was find oxygen or ozone or, or mm. methane or something in the atmosphere. And then they just keep finding a natural mechanism that does this. And so it, it really, like big surprise, it's going to be complicated. And making the case that you are at, indeed seeing a signal of life is going to be it's going to be a lot of work to say like we're seeing this amount of methane and we're you know we're seeing these chemicals at this side of the of the chemical signatures and those ones over there on the spectrum and we're seeing infrared light in a certain way and so on right and and but back to you folks with your radio telescopes you know you're just like yep aliens <laughs> so so i can see how it's i hope you're right i i, do I hope too. it's bad on ambiguous yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, now, there's a great question that I actually really like this. Um, T. Holmes says, does it strike you as funny that everyone was skeptical of SETI back in the day, but less skeptical now, though the evidence is looking like there's nobody out there? Yeah, well, that's an interesting question. I, I don't think it's actually quite the way it's described in the question. Uh, it is true that people, I don't know that they were skeptical. They just thought, you know, maybe it's not science or... I don't know, but it, it was a delicate, if you will, mm -hmm. a delicate topic uh, 60 years ago, and it's not. It's mm -hmm. not a, a delicate topic anymore. Part of that is, I think the change is the fact that we found that planets are so gosh darn plentiful. Mm -hmm. You've know, got all this real estate there, and it becomes a little uncomfortable if you say, well, yeah, a trillion planets in the Milky Way, but, you know, only Earth has got anything interesting. That, you know, you should be skeptical when anybody says, you're really special, uh, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've, I've not had the experience of anybody saying that. But, you know, in, indeed, one one should be careful. But it doesn't mean that nobody's out there. The fact that said he hasn't found anything. Any yeah. more than it means that there's no life in the solar system because we haven't yet found it. We've, we found these, you know, tantalizing clues. Yeah. But nothing can compel, compelling yet. But that doesn't mean it isn't there. It just mm -hmm. means the experiment has to get better. Um, and so from your perspective now, when you look at all of the active work that's being done right now, as well as the potential ideas that are, you know, that are like physically possible, maybe haven't been implemented yet, like say the square kilometer array or the Louvoir telescope, which, what do you think is going to be the most productive instrument or or methodology to to take us closer to this answer that's hard to say i mean most productive to begin with what does that even mean if you if you say well confirmation if, or non-confirmation you know if, yeah if, if you, you can make a discovery or a non-discovery i mean a non-discovery well, I mean, is a negative result is still nah, it doesn't mean so much in this field if you if you have a negative result that might just mean you didn't look in the right place at the right plot right time with the right instrument. It, it could easily mean that. So if you don't find anything, it really doesn't mean anything. I mean, it's like saying, you know, well, I went on that blind date last week and it was a total washout, right? <laughs> well, but it doesn't, sure. doesn't mean that there isn't somebody out there. Sure, but so. I mean, you can you can go to Mars and you can say, I don't see any trees. I don't see any, any dinosaurs roaming around. I don't see any animals. I don't see any mice. I don't see any bugs. Maybe what's left is bacteria, but... And so if we, and so you are constraining what's possible, you know, because a long time ago, people thought, oh yeah, no, we could see life forms on Venus. And, and once we peer through the clouds and that's not the case anymore. Right. Yeah. So I think well, that you can, probably not. I mean, I'll give you an example of, of something that I really like, for example, the Louvoir telescope, right? I've mentioned this quote many times that, that when the Louvoir telescope comes online, it will be able to perceive the atmospheres of planets far enough away that essentially if it doesn't see the biosignatures that, that we will hope have, have shown up at that point, it will, statistically speaking, give you about a 90% certainty that the Milky Way is devoid of, of those biosignatures. And so, you know, you could say, okay, we need more... Um, 
a, a bigger statistical, you know, it's just a chance and we're not looking for the right kind of life and so on and so forth. But after a while, you're like, if I don't see anything, maybe we're alone. Well, I don't, I don't see that happening. Uh, look, the number of planetary systems uh, is on the order of 10 to 11, let's say, 100 billion. Yeah. Okay. You know, so a thousand billion planets, but a hundred billion star systems that have these. If one in a million of them has life that we can detect, right? Okay, that's that's still a lot of them, mm -hmm. but it means that in order to find an indication of life, you have to look at a very big sample. And keep in mind that the telescopes we're talking about now, you know, James Webb and Lubar and so forth and so on, they can look for biosignatures, oxygen, methane, all these kinds of gases that we think are indicators of biology. They can look at uh, for that in the atmospheres of maybe 50 planets, maybe 100 planets. I mean, let's give them the benefit of the doubt, maybe 1,000 planets. Yep. But that might still be too, too small a sample. Yeah. I, I don't think anybody would say, okay, that's yeah. it, Bob. We're yeah. alone here. I mean, uh, well, I, I mean, I think... You know, I, I, you know, I don't, I don't want to, we don't need to argue the Fermi paradox uh, today, but, you know, I find either answer to the Fermi paradox, one of the most important questions that humanity can possibly ask and definitely worth putting energy into. So, you know, I think that, that it is worth our time to, to search and find what we find. And we may find the answer we're hoping for. We may find the answer that we weren't hoping for, whichever answer you prefer. And either way, um, as, you know, Arthur C. Clarke said, you know, either the universe, you know, either we're alone in the universe or we're not. And each answer is equally terrifying. Um, it is worth, it is a noble pursuit. Um, I want to, uh, I would love to uh, throw some questions that we're getting from the chat your way, because normally I just, hog the time so um all right so neil Yu, who is a regular contributor here on on the in the community is really excited about the nimitz encounters and the um you know all, and i know you mentioned this f recently what is your current feelings on the state of u.s air force military um release of videos and interest in, in UFOs? Well, I mean, it is uh, endless interest in UFOs, and that's understandable. You've already pointed out the fact that we're always interested in life beyond it's Earth. all we talk about. Yeah. yeah right. Right. <laughs> nobody says, nobody seems to be talking about, you know, geomorphic uh, landforms on Pluto or something. But in any case, yeah, the UFO story. Well, they're certainly intriguing. I mean, I've looked at those videos like I think probably everybody who's watching this has looked at them and they're a little puzzling. Now, there are actually two sorts of videos, as I recall. One is the, I think they call it the go fast video. And you can see the forward looking camera on these F-18 Hornets that the Navy is flying. And you see, you know, they're infrared cameras. So you're, you're seeing a heat picture of uh, whatever's in front of the camera, uh, in front of the jet. And you see the ocean there because they were flying over the ocean. And then you see this round object sort of shoot by, okay? And uh, you can say, well, that was, I mean, it's for real, right? So what is it? Yeah. Well, I mean, maybe it's, you know, stuffed with aliens, or maybe it really is a balloon. And, of course, your jet is moving at whatever, 400 miles an hour. I don't know how, quite how fast they were moving. But, you know, so it goes by. I mean, it's just a parallax effect. And so the balloon looks like it's shooting in the opposite direction. That would explain that particular video. Yep. Uh, that would be somewhat disappointing if he found out that, well, it was just a blue. But yep. the more interesting ones, I think, at least for me, are the, you know, what are they called? The Tic Tac videos and so forth. You know, where you see something that looks like a peanut, this black peanut, and then it rotates a little bit and then does this, that, and the other. Now, maybe, again, it's alien crap, but remember, these are infrared cameras. Yep. And if you had a plane, a twin-engine jet, that was a mile or two miles in front of the Navy jet, You and you looked at it with an infrared camera, you would get this double blob because you're just looking at the hot exhaust from the jet engines. And that would pretty much explain it. The, the motions and so forth I've heard uh, from some military, former military pilots, uh, could be an artifact of the tracking system in the camera. Bottom line, I mean, this is probably not making anybody happy, but my... <laughs> What I find is 
when, when people send me photos, and they do just about every day, of things they've seen in the sky, and I say, well, actually what that is, is and I give them, you know, that's that's your autofocus or that's internal reflection in the lens. Yeah, 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 yeah. Nobody, nobody comes back to me and says, thanks a lot. I really <laughs> appreciate that. Yeah. No, they don't. But but the, the, the bottom line is simply this. The Navy videos are certainly intriguing, but because you can already think of things they could be that are not aliens. Yes. Then you're caught in this Occam's razor kind of argument. You know, aliens or, you know, a twin engine jet, uh, you know, <laughs> or a balloon or, or yeah. know, balloon, whatever. Yeah. And so in that circumstance, you can't say that the case are aliens, much though you might prefer it, yeah. is proven. It's just one possibility. And it's one that requires the assumption that the aliens have come, you know, who knows how many dozens of light years just to tease the top guns in the Navy. Right, right. I mean, I think that that the best we can do with the evidence that exists is to say it's unidentified. It's beautifully described by the U part of it's it's fulfilling all three parts of the UFO name. And and that's that's where this conversation has to end. And and you may be interested and excited by about unidentified things, but just by the name, you've got to just stop the you've got to stop the inquiry until more evidence is able to be acquired. And so and so then I think it's an argument of like, is it worth attempting to acquire more data on this kind of situation? I mean, that's where I think the rubber kind of hits the road is like, do we spend scarce resources scanning the skies for moving objects and attempting to figure out what they are, which people do? Or do you spend them in building radio telescopes attempting to receive signals from aliens? Or do you attempt them to build spaceships that are going to go to search for life on Mars? I mean, there's if there is um, like it's just and yeah, absolutely. If, if someone can can introduce me to their alien friend and I can check out their spaceship and I can as Neil deGrasse Tyson always says, just borrow a hyperspanner for the day. Uh, we'll get to the bottom of this right away. Yeah, I, I don't think it's an either or situation either, though. I mean, you, you can do all of that. And spending big money to try and find these things, uh, if, if that's your predilection, you, you don't really need to in the sense that we already have yeah. 750 satellites operational satellites that are looking down toward the earth. You know, that's to leave aside all the communication satellites and yep. the space telescopes and all that. So there are already 750 satellites. And on average, every day they photograph every square mile of Earth's surface, including the oceans, by the way. Yep. So if there's something flying around that the FAA doesn't know about, you would think that these uh, cameras would find them. And yep. if you say, oh, well, they are, but that's all being suppressed, yeah, yeah. and you're resorting to, I think, an untenable position where you're saying, oh, it's for real, but it's all being kept uh, secret. Yeah. And that yeah. just doesn't, doesn't fly, even though that's kind <laughs> right, of a bad right. pun. Yeah. And so I think it's just really important to to draw that line and to just say, okay, yeah, unidentified. I don't know what that was. You know, let's talk about something else now. Because, because until like, just because until someone can provide any additional data, you have to, you have to stop the conversation, but to make the leap to say, I don't know what that is. Therefore I know what it is. That's a step too far. Yeah. It's, uh, as Popeye used to say, you've jumped to seclusions. <laughs> jumped to <Yeah>. seclusions. <laughs> um, so Christian Woodland asks, would it make sense to scan for Earth life from a far off area in space to see if we can detect such? So what do you think about classifying the Earth as an exoplanet? Is there value to that? Well, it's an exoplanet to everybody else. Yeah. Uh, well, in a sense, people have done this, um, or at least they've done it on paper. They have done very little for real. We've made photographs, obviously, of the Earth. And, you know, you can look at the, the photos made from the moon or halfway to the moon. It's very obvious that the Earth is a little different than the other planets in our solar system, right? It has liquid oceans and it's got continents and clouds and weather and atmosphere and all that stuff. That you can do. But could you detect the life on Earth from space? Well, I mean, even if you were light years away and you had a really good telescope, you might mm -hmm. be able to do that because you would see the color that's being reflected by the Earth. And you would notice that it changes as the Earth orbits the sun. Because, you know, in the winter, the, the trees lose their leaves, whatever. 
a lot of the green is gone in one hemisphere and it's increasing the other hemisphere. You might be able to tease that out of the data depending on how good your telescope was. Obviously, you could also pretty easily measure the oxygen and that would tell you, oh, well, there's something there making oxygen and that's, you know, your house plants, but also a lot of uh, bacteria in the ocean, you know. Um, so, you know, that you could do. If you were within 75 light years of, of Earth, of course, you could uh, tune in our early radars and television and FM radio. So, but nobody has done this because it's, you know, an experiment you can do with pencil and paper. You don't have to actually send a receiver yeah. out into space and say, could you pick up the Earth? Right. I mean, you, you know whether you could or not. And it would depend on how good a uh, setup you had at the receiving end. Well, there was a, I mean, there's a wonderful experiment where I think it was, was it Galileo spacecraft when it flew past the Earth, took a picture of the Earth, and Carl Sagan wrote a paper that, Gal, that Galileo had detected um, life on a planet and sort of provided all of this information about, about all of the indicators. And so I think if you're standing on the surface of this other world or and you're looking around, you're able to determine whether there's life or not. And if, you, if you're looking down from orbit, it gets a little harder, but maybe you can still do it. And as you keep going farther and farther away, it just gets tougher to make a more conclusive case that, yes, indeed, there is life there. And then eventually your ability to detect these things just start to fall over this horizon, and it's more and more difficult to... Um, to be able to just make any kind of conclusive evidence. And that's... Yeah, no, distance is not your friend, obviously. <laughs> yeah, but the trick but, is just make a bigger telescope, obviously. Yeah, well, that, that, that exactly right. I mean, you know, I just as, for the fun of it, worked out if you could build a telescope that was, you know, uh, many miles across, that's not something we're going to build. But, you know, we build telescopes that are a lot bigger than what Galileo had 400 years ago. And 400 years ago, I mean, 400 years is not very long. I personally find it a long time to wait for anything, but 400 years is not terribly long. So what kind of telescope would a society that's a, a million years more advanced yes. than we are at? And if they can build something really big, then they can actually make pictures of worlds very far away. And, you know, if you do that, you might notice things. Yeah. Um, so uh, Regents asks, what would a definitive Venus mission look like? Uh, would it have to be sample return? If you wanted to, I don't think so. No, I, I mean, if if you say we want to find out whether the phosphine in the atmosphere of Venus is due to biology, and and by the way, there are other indicators that might bear on this. Uh, the fact that there are certain absorption lines in the, uh, I think they're in the ultraviolet, but I may be wrong. Maybe the infrared, but in any case, not the visible. Uh, certain absorption lines of the Venusian atmosphere that are known, where you know certain parts of the spectrum of the light from the sun that's falling on the Venusian atmosphere gets absorbed, okay? And it doesn't seem to be the just the consequence of the atmosphere itself, that there is some component of the atmosphere that's absorbing these wavelengths of light. And uh, as it turns out, you know, plant, little microscopic plants might do that. So there is this, all this stuff. But I think that if you want to determine whether there's life, you know, buoyant life in the Venusian atmosphere, yeah, you got to send something through the atmosphere. It would be good to do what you were suggesting, which is, you know, just have a, a balloon because then you could hang out yeah. at the right altitude and spend some time doing it. I don't think you'd have to bring anything back. Right. If you have, you know, a, a clever experiment. I mean, as long if there's as it's got a windshield, then bugs will splat into it and it should be fine. Bugs, yeah. That'd be good. Venusian insects. There was a movie made in the 1950s. Yeah. I think it was a made for TV movie called Zontar, Thing from Venus. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he looked like your ASA standard alien, actually. Was this before Mariner 10? Uh, probably yes. would have been, yeah, like yes. 19, yeah. 1970s or so. I don't so. think that 19th. would have dissuaded the producers. Yeah, probably not, yeah. I, well, I remember there was like, was it a Ray Bradbury story or something like that about some kid who lived on the Venusian colony It rained for years and years and years and then then the one day when it stopped raining he got he got locked in a cabinet while his friends all went out and got to play in the sunshine for the one day every 20 years that it remains sunny and then and then and then they found him inside he'd been you know bullies had locked him and then he came back and and then it started to rain again and he missed his chance to enjoy sunshine so <laughs> so that's what well, they thought back in like the 1950s yeah well i i mean much more recently than that the uh the checkout line press 
had stories about the dinosaurs on Venus. Right, right. Yeah. Um, well, 90% the gravity of Earth. You can have much larger creatures there. Um, Manimus11 asks, what about a telescope on the moon? Would that work to find something? Um, this is a layup. Uh, tell us about how wonderful the moon is for SETI. Well, I mean, the moon, I, I don't know that it's been that wonderful. And when I look over the donations to fund the SETI effort, very few of them have come from the moon. <laughs> But nope. there is a point here. Yeah. There's a point here, and it's a good one. Obviously, the moon doesn't have any atmosphere. So if you put an optical telescope, you know, mirrors and lenses on the moon, you know, you get a dark sky all the time. I mean, the sun is over there, but it doesn't matter. You can still look at the stars over here because there's no atmosphere. Uh, and, you know, so th there's that. And people talk about putting observatories on the moon, but you can also put them in space. But when it comes to radio telescopes, they tend to be very big. The bigger is the better. Right. So, you know, the biggest radio telescope is the what the single dish is the fast the radio fast telescope, telescope in China, yeah. which I think is 500 yeah. meters in diameter. So, you know, that's pretty big and you can't put that on a satellite and launch it. Right. <laughs> so, you know, something like that, though, you could put on the moon. And the big advantage for SETI would be to put something on the far side of the moon, the back side of the moon, because back as seen from here, because that's one place in in the universe that is permanently <laughs> you know, shielded from all the interference that we make, all our transmitters and, you know, all the, all the electronic noise we make here, which can mess up any attempt to find a signal from ET. So uh, the backside of the moon, if you happen to have the wherewithal to fund that kind of a project, I mean, you should really get in touch. Yeah. I, I mean, there's been... Uh, Beth was just mentioning in the chat that we we just have a story we just posted on Universe Today about that, and you know I I am I'm doing my part for the cause. Every time I see a paper that I think is is interesting, I I I task a writer to get a story up on Universe Today about this because, and there's some just some absolutely fascinating ideas. One that I really liked is is sort of akin to the Murchison Array in in. Um, Australia. on Australia where they have like a rover that lands or like a lander and then a rover comes out and then just lays out a those the same kind of antenna over an enormous size on the far side of the moon so that you could actually have this quiet place one of the capabilities of a thing like that for example would be to determine it would be able to detect magnetospheres of extrasolar planets as they're interacting with solar flares from the star so you would be able to go straight to there's a planet in the habitable zone with a uh, with a magnetosphere that's protecting life on the planet if it's if there is life on the planet. Not to mention, you know, seeing the 21 centimeter line at the beginning of the universe and being able to probe the cosmic dark ages. But, but more importantly, magnetospheres and and other things. So, yeah, I cannot wait until somebody finally commits and, and puts a, a radio telescope on the moon. Not necessarily a gigantic dish. I think there's some pretty interesting ideas just to drive around and drop antennas. And if you build a big enough array, you've got yourself a powerful interferometer and you're, you're good to go. Yeah, I, well, obviously the the scheme you uh, just described, where you just essentially lay wire across yep. the moon, uh, that'll work for low frequency radio reception. Yep. Um, you know, obviously it doesn't work so well at microwaves, but uh, yeah, you could do that. I think I think that would be pretty good. It might ask for union wages. <laughs> the robot. Yeah. 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 I mean, there are other problems too. You also have to figure out how to get whatever data you're collecting from the backside of the moon back to Earth. Well, and the Chinese means... solve this. You know, they already have a spacecraft in the Moon L2 Lagrange point transmitting, retransmitting data from the surface. And it's a radio telescope. So uh, I think we're there. You know, that's been solved. That's a solved problem. Yeah, L2 doesn't sound right. But yes, you could do L1, that. But then L2, you, now you yeah. also have to build the you have to build the relay satellite. I mean, yeah, just, just to me, the cost just goes up. And well, no, but I mean, there's already a, there's already a radio satellite there right now. With a, actually, there's a Dutch radio telescope on board, um, and then there's from the the Chinese satellite, and in fact, there's another one in the works to do. Uh, I think like next year, two years from now, another radio telescope is going to go to the L two, but in space, not on the not on the surface. So, um, uh. 
let's see. So Arjon asks, could we eventually tell if a planet had different environments, like moist areas, dry areas? Most planets seem to not have much variation. Maybe variation is a key to life. So could we detect variation? Well, you know, again, if you have a big enough telescope, you can find anything you want. But the kind of things that you're likely to do over the course of the next decade or two, if you find a planet, here's a really simple experiment. You just monitor the amount of light coming from that planet, if you can do that. That's hard because now you've got to collect enough light from the planet to at yeah. least illuminate one pixel yeah. on your camera. Ignoring the to be star. More. Yeah, 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 exactly. You, you, you know, we found, what, 4,500 or so planets, but almost none of them has ever been seen. Right? They've been found by indirect methods. You know, they cross in front of their star or, you know, they, they, they cause the star to wobble and all that kind of stuff. So you need a telescope that's good enough, which is to say big enough, to actually see the planet. Actually, it doesn't have to be so big, but it has to be really good about uh, blocking the light from the, from the host star. That's a, that's a tricky thing. But if you can get that light, if you can get one pixel's worth of light, then all you do is you just sort of look at it as the planet goes around a star. You know, you look at it over the course of days or a week, and you see if the amount of light coming back from it is varying. If you did that for Earth, you'd notice, well, every 24 hours it goes through a cycle where yep. the brightness kind of dims, and then it gets brighter again, and then it dims because of the rotation of the Earth. So sometimes you're looking at, uh, you know, bright parts of the Earth, maybe the, the continents, and then the rest of the time you're looking at the dark oceans. So that kind of thing is not very hard to do if you can actually see the, the planet. Right. As if long you as you've got a gigantic the... telescope, you're capable of blocking the light from the star, then you could see those that variation of like continents versus oceans. Yeah. Actually, it doesn't have to be that big a telescope. It isn't a matter of collecting uh, enough light, actually. Uh, it's mostly a matter of the fact that the planet as seen from here on Earth, that planet is very, very close to the star, right? Yeah. And so this, the, you know, you think, oh, well, okay, so you see the star and then you see the planet next to it. But, you know, telescopes always have slight imperfections and they're, they're, you know, the diffraction of light is another problem. And so the light from the star being, you know, maybe billions of times, literally billions of times brighter than the planet, it, all these imperfections scatter some of the starlight and block your view of the planet. That's what makes it hard. It isn't so much that the, the telescope has to be huge as the fact that it has to have what's called a very high dynamic range. Right, yeah. Um, I mean, and that's the, sort of the other thing that I really love to sort of task writers at, on Universe Today with is just clever ideas like like that. I remember someone proposing, yeah, we hear, we could see seasonal variations. So maybe we could see the 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 northern polar caps increasing and then decreasing and, and that would change the 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 colors coming from the planet over multiple years yeah. assuming you can and there was one that just came out someone proposed like you could see the shadows of trees because it would just change the nature of the light depending on the time of the day it would make the light coming from the the planet like i think the polarization of the light i forget exactly what they were going at but it would just the shadows look different from the sharp features from from just the moon like rocky mountains as opposed to the you know the sort of the 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 trees on the surface instead and 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 i hear a million of these ideas and i love them and i and you each one you're like i wish someone would just give you a great big telescope so you could just check and well, one idea that's been bandied around for quite a while now is uh, gravitational lensing, mm -hmm. right? Uh, this is just a consequence of, of relativity, really. But, you know, any massive object, well, any object which has mass, which includes this flea over here, anything that has mass will bend light a little bit. Now, the flea is not bending light very much. Uh, the sun, however, bends starlight. So if you're looking at a star that's right near the edge of the sun, it will seem to shift in position by a couple of seconds of arc, it isn't very much. But that effect allows you, in principle, to use a big, massive object like the sun yep. as, as a big lens, uh, you know, to collect light. Now, the problem is that the focus that you need to, to go to in order to use that is, uh, I don't know, 10 times, maybe more. It's, it's a 1,000 AU. Yeah, well, 500 is the starting point. Yeah, and starting 1, point. is probably what you need. Yeah. But, you know, 1,000 AU, okay, that's 
you know, uh, that, that's, what is it? Uh, a thousand hundred million miles, that's long. But you could, you could put a satellite out there. It might take you years to get it there, but you could do it. Yep. The only trouble is then you're only looking in one direction because you look at the sun. <laughs> yeah. But anyhow, all that aside, nobody cares about all of that. But if you just do the calculations, I, I actually did once. Uh, could you use a telescope like that to see the city lights from a city the size of Los Angeles from 100 light years away? And the answer was, yeah, pretty much, <laughs> pretty much. So maybe that would be the way to go. See, so now we're back to just give these people a bigger telescope or a yeah. more powerful telescope that can can get this job done. Because, you know, it's that same idea. You talk to astronauts and, and they say, oh, yeah, you, the Earth in the daytime, it's hard to see any examples of human civilization. But you see at night and it is stark. Like there's no question the impact that humanity is having on our planet with all of the lights. And in fact, you can even tell who's got money and who doesn't have money just by where the lights are located and where people live and don't live. So um, it's pretty it's pretty fascinating. Um, do you this is a question that I get that I figure I would uh, I would throw your way is, you know, in searching for the radio spectrum, People always make this ask me this question, like, and I'm sure you've gotten it a million times as well, um, which is like, how do we know that aliens are still using radio communications to to talk? Maybe they've transcended to neutrinos or whatever, man. So, um, how do you respond to that? Yeah, well, it's true. They may maybe they use you know subspace communication. Isn't that what they use? In yeah, Star Trek? yeah. I, I've never known what that is, but it certainly sounds good. Subspace communication to me always meant uh, talking to the guy next to you on the uh, subway platform in Queens, but I don't know. All right, so why would they be using radio? It's so old school. But yeah, it's old school, but many things are old school, right? Uh, the fact that we're still using, you know, uh, eyeballs to, to look at the, the, the world is because you get a lot of information from light, from this electromagnetic radiation. So I think that any society that's technically sophisticated, yeah, you can expect that they will have invented the wheel. We still use that. It's pretty old. But they will also have invented radio, lasers, because yeah. you can send lots of bits of information with these technologies, and you can send them at the fastest speed that you know seems to be possible, which, of course, is the speed of light. You can't send information faster than that, at least according to Al Einstein, and he, he seems to be right about most things. So uh, I, I think that it's as predictable as saying, well, will they have the wheel? I really think it's, it's very likely they'll use it. They won't use it for the same things we use it for. It won't be all talk radio or top 40 or who knows what, but, but they will use the technology. They will use this ability of the universe to convey information across very, very uh, vast distances, even, even light years, if you really want to do that. Yeah. With a relatively simple technology. Neutrinos sound good, but neutrinos, you take a single neutrino if you can get your hands on it. A single neutrino, you know, there's a lot, of, it takes a lot of energy to make a neutrino. And uh, it's also very hard to detect them because they just go through everything, right? I mean, yeah. you know, your head is just seen a, a trillion neutrinos per second go through your head, right? Yeah. And, and because nothing stops them, fortunately, it doesn't really decrease your IQ. So, <laughs> Neutrinos are good, but they're hard to make. They cost a lot of money to make the energy in order to make a neutrino. And they're also very hard to detect. I mean, you, you, if you look at the big neutrino detectors on Earth, they're huge. They're like a kilometer across. A radio trans transmitter receiver, that's very much smaller. And the information goes just as fast, in fact, faster. The, you know, when people talk about the Fermi paradox um, and they you know, the question is not why don't we detect anybody? Because obviously the big, the universe is big and the universe is old. And, and the moment life started on earth, it could have, it did. You know, the question that Fermi was really asking is where are they? Why haven't they traveled to here? Which is, I guess, back to the UFO question. So what answer is your favorite for, for the Fermi paradox? No, I don't, I don't think I have a really favorite. I mean, as you know, there have been entire books written about the Fermi. Paradox. Of course, yeah. And and the whole the the basis for Fermi's, you know, question where is everybody? Yeah, was simply that the amount of time it would take for an advanced society, even if they had rockets that were only a hundred times faster than ours or a thousand times, 
you know, that's possible to do, uh, for them to colonize every star system in the galaxy is 30, 40, 50 million years, which is very short compared to the age of the galaxy. So the point is, if somebody out there wanted to colonize a galaxy, if one society wanted yeah. to do that, they don't, you know, you don't require them all to do it. If, if one decided to do it, they, they've had time to do it. But, you know, colonizing things, I mean, there's been plenty of experience with colonization here on Earth, and you do it for a couple of hundred years, but you don't do it forever. You know, you run out of resources, or the colonists begin to fight back, or there's competition from somebody else, or you just decide, you know, instead of spending the money to do that, you know, let's provide everybody with, I don't know, the latest video game. Or, I mean, I don't know what they're going to do. But the fact that you don't see aliens everywhere doesn't mean there aren't aliens everywhere. It just means you don't see them. Mm -hmm. and, and I just don't think that that's, that's terribly compelling. Hmm. Interesting. I, I find it, uh, personally, I find it harrowing and, uh, and mind bending. So, um, so, but I, but I can totally respect that you don't want to, uh, uh, well, that it doesn't, let, let me give you an example of something. Uh, this has been suggested as an, uh, an explanation for the fairy paradox. And that is that the galaxy is urbanized and there is some parts of the galaxy where there's just a lot of, there's a lot of activity and there are colonists everywhere. And there's the Federation of planets and Captain Kirk uh, gets to dry clean his outfit or whatever. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so you have that part of the galaxy, but a lot of the rest of the galaxy is sort of like the outback in Australia, right? You know, you go 200 miles west of Sydney and there aren't many people, right? There really aren't. And so maybe that's where we are. We're in a part of the galaxy. Obviously, if there were aliens here, maybe they would have suppressed whatever was happening on Earth, you know, four billion years ago to give them a rise to life. And so obviously, if we're going to be asking this question, and the very fact that we're here to ask that question suggests that we're in a backwater. Either that or there's just nobody out there. <laughs> right. That's, okay. That's my off-the-cuff answer. Well, I think, you know what? That's fine then. I mean, I think that, that that is your response, and I think that's great. I mean, I think that at least... You know, at the very best, we are in the backwater uh, edge of the uh, of the of the galaxy that we are. We have not been invited to the party yet. So, yeah, well, so we hard. have to shove our way into the party, I think, is the point here. Well, what's the dress code? That's what I want to know. <laughs> Bring a telescope, I guess. Um, uh T. Home asks, uh, given what we know today, what factor of the Drake equation do you think restricts the chances of alien life the most? Well, I, I, I'm sorry that my answers to all these questions is the same answer. Namely, I don't know. Uh -oh. but, but there are some factors there in the Drake equation that are routinely singled out as being problematic. Certainly the last factor, L. How long does an intelligent... Uh, society last. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they're, they're, particularly millennials seem to be really hard over about the fact that we're going to wipe ourselves out. I mean, there are all sorts of challenges, nuclear weapons, climate change, pandemics, you name it. We've got a, a dystopian future for all of you. Yeah. But, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm still, I'm old enough to be still optimistic. I don't think that explains uh, why we're not finding anybody. Uh, but I, I, so that that's that term. It may be that as soon as you've developed transmitters and you can be found by a SETI experiment, within 100 years, you use all your nuclear weapons and just wipe everybody out. It's actually quite hard to wipe everybody out, by yeah. the way, if yeah. you're thinking of doing it this weekend. But there are other problematic questions. Just because you have a lot of life doesn't mean you ever get the kind of life that can figure out physics and chemistry and build stuff. Right. I mean, yeah. Earth has had life for four billion years, more or less. And uh, only in the last couple of hundred years have we been able to do that kind of technological yep. advance. So that doesn't you know, maybe that's a big barrier. right there. It's interesting. I would I would love to see uh, we're thinking of running a series again on Universe Today. I know I'm shamelessly promoting my project. We'll get to yours in a second. But um, where we just try to figure out the most comprehensive version of the of the Drake equation that we can. We're going to ask every scientists to just start brainstorming factors and my guess is we'll end up with thousands like 
does it have a moon? Is the moon tidally locked? Is it a large moon? Does it have a magnetosphere? Does it have and on and on and on and on? It'd be very interesting to sort of think about, you know, this times that times that, like based on our, our current, now our new knowledge. I mean, I'm sure even Drake himself would love to just redo the num redo the equation based on what we now know in terms of the of, of science. Well, I actually asked him that not too long ago. Okay, all right. Well, then, and and you know the Drake is, equation was cooked up in 1961 as the agenda yeah. for a meeting in Greenbank, West Virginia, and they you know they discussed what they thought the the values of the various terms in the equation were, and you know their knowledge was not as good as our knowledge today. We we know, for example, what fraction of stars have planets. We even have some idea what fraction of those planets might be habitable. They didn't have any of that. Nonetheless, their estimates for all the uh, uh, Drake equation parameters that we now know better, right, were about the same. <laughs> right. They, they, they weren't any different, even though they didn't really know. Right. They guessed. They were good guessers. These were smart people. Yeah. So I, you know, I asked Frank. He gets, you know, emails essentially every week from people yes. who think they have a new factor for the equation, and he's never actually found that uh, necessary. But yeah. uh, it's also the case that he doesn't think that the estimate for the number of societies out there that are broadcasting should change very much from what they thought it was in 1961 either. It is interesting to me how many of the ideas that were proposed back in the 1960s and 70s are still just the kind of the shining pinnacle concepts that we still all wrestle with today that 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 these giants Frank Drake and Fermi and and Carl Sagan they just they planted such incredible ideas in our minds that we've been wrestling with them ever since um yeah. uh, so don't forget the Russians too well because absolutely yeah yeah of course the Kardashev yeah, scale the Russians and, were, yeah the Russians were very very clever they didn't have enough money to actually build too many telescopes but they were very smart. Yeah, so they came up with a lot of the yeah. really important ideas. Really worked hard on getting a spacecraft to the surface of Venus. Like they did. If there's one thing they really nailed, it was it was getting a spacecraft. So I want to talk. We've got a couple of minutes left, but you have a podcast. So if you're enjoying the conversation with Seth, you can hear him go on about these topics, all kinds of new discoveries, anytime you want. So, so let's talk about your podcast. Yeah, it's a podcast. It's also a radio show. Uh, it's called Big Picture Science. Big Picture Science. And, you know, you just just Google that, Big Picture Science. You might be able to remember that. It's uh, it's certainly much easier to remember if you remember it in Hungarian or Icelandic. Big Picture Science. And uh, we cover all science, not just the kind of stuff we're talking about today. So check it out. That's fantastic. Yeah. And, and, and not just the search for life, but just Big Picture Science in general. Science in general. Yeah, we're talking uh, this week about, well, uh, fungi that because of climate change are beginning to kill people around the world because they've adopted, sorry, they've adapted to warmer temperatures and now they can adapt to 98.6 degrees in a human body. That's a really important temperature. Yes. <laughs> that sounds absolutely true. And what are you like obsessed about right now? What am I obsessed about? Yeah, yeah. What's... Just in general? I mean, are you talking about you yeah? Know, well, out even of the just house? in general, or about or about in in the world of science? Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't know about you. I get. I just get a little. Uh, I get a little. I go down rabbit holes for a while. Yeah. Well, I've done that. It turns out that the, the rabbits don't appreciate it. No. I, I I I think obsession. There, I have many interests, and it's hard to say which one is obsessing me the most. But it. In terms of science, I think, uh, you know, aside from biology, which is very interesting. The other thing is, of course, artificial intelligence. I find that very interesting. And astronomy always. There's yeah. always something happening in astronomy every day. There are, you know, three or five stories yeah. uh, that come out, uh, you know, about astronomical research. I had a history in which I was involved in the uh, study of galaxies, and we found that there was something very heavy in galaxies that nobody could see. It's now called dark matter. So I, I do tend to follow that a little bit too. Yeah, yeah. The uh, actually artificial intelligence has been making some great strides in planetary science. They uh, just fine-tuned an algorithm to like properly find craters on Mars, which has been sort of grad student work for decades. And now suddenly a computer can go and count craters well, and and start to reveal some pretty interesting 
you know, how useful it is to know numbers of craters on, on, on Mars and things like that. So we're seeing it in terms of cl classifications of galaxies. So a lot of this stuff that, yeah, was a, was the job of a grad student has now become the job of a computer, which is, which that's is why wonderful. they're in the unemployment lines. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They'll find jobs. They'll find jobs. Um, well, Seth, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you again. I, you know, you're humble, but you have created an enormous impact in uh, all of our work and in the science communication field. And and I know a lot of people have been inspired by you in the in the science field as well. I think I can think of few people who have contributed to the field of SETI. A lot of what we just talked about at the beginning, this is due to you. So thank you for all of your contributions. Everyone, if you want to uh, listen to his podcast, his radio show, old timey radio show, uh, definitely do that as well. Um, and anytime I, I always ask if you ever do find the aliens, please let us know. I think you'll hear about it. <laughs> I want to hear from you. I want to, yeah, I want to get the advance notice. Yeah. 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 Everybody wants advance. I notice. know. I know. I, I may be the last one to know. <laughs> All right. Well, I'll let you know. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Seth. Thanks very much. Thanks everybody.